Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Strangers in China is a member of the Seneca Network, powered by SupChina. There is no accurate number of China's LGBT population, but the most common estimate is that they represent 5% of the population, that is 70 million, which equals the 20th biggest country in the world. China has a history of over 5,000 years. Many Asian emperors like to have same-sex partners. For example, Emperor Ai of the Han Dynasty had a favorite male companion, Dong Xian. One day, Dong Xian fell asleep on the emperor's sleeve. Instead of waking him, the emperor carefully cut off his sleeve. Breaking the sleeve, or Duan Xiu, thus became a synonym for homosexuality. Homosexuality was decriminalized in 1997 and was removed from the official list of mental disorders in 2001. But many people still consider homosexuality as a foreign concept and in many textbooks, it is still defined as perverse or an impediment. Same-sex marriage is illegal in China. The government forbids homosexual content in media. In 2015, Chinese censor removed a popular gay web series from all its channels. China's LGBT movement is happening, and we need to let the world hear the voices of the 70 million people. You're listening to Strangers in China. I'm Clay. I'm Sheree. So, Sheree, who are we talking to this week? We're talking to Ashley, who's a 26-year-old queer activist. Like, activist like she's out on the street, or, or what do you mean? Well, she's more of a documentary filmmaker and content creator for social media. She has almost 40,000 followers in China. I have a feeling that not just being an activist, but being an LGBTQ activist would have its challenges here in China. Right. And this is something quite notable because the Chinese government still discriminates against gay people and it tends to ban and erase LGBTQ content. So she's putting herself at risk, I think, in being a public queer person. And she's also putting a lot of efforts into something that could be wiped out by the government at any point. If her content is so censored all the time, Um, How does she sort of find purpose in this kind of work? Well, I think the censorship gives her a sense of purpose, actually, because media is kind of a battleground in China, and you constantly have to try to push the envelope in terms of what gets out there and what gets in front of people's eyes, especially for the queer community. So Ashley's actually traveled and studied abroad in France and in the U.S., but I think she really came back because she feels that this fight that she's having in the media space is quite important to her and quite important to her activism. Why is it important that, uh, you know, she she's out there for people? Because 
gay people in China don't get to see themselves in the media. And they don't know how to even identify when they are gay sometimes because there's no models, there's no community sometimes for them to access, especially if they're from a small town. So she's using the internet to give them models and visibility. Chapter three. When you don't want to lay in the California sun for the rest of your life. So let's get to know Ashley a little bit. So throughout this episode, you'll be hearing some clips from her documentary videos, which you can find on YouTube. Hi, my name is Ashley. I was born in Shanghai, China, and I'm now living in Los Angeles. And this is what a Chinese lesbian looks like. But before we start, I should say China is a big and a complex place. And there are over 70 million LGBT people living there. That's 3 million more than the entire population of France. What? Everybody's experience is different, and these are just mine. I was born and raised in Shanghai, and for the first 18 years of my life, I was just this boring, stereotypical straight-A student. I only knew to work hard, to get good grades, to get into a good college. But when I was 16 years old, I fell in love with my first girlfriend back then, but I didn't really know the word homosexuality because we didn't have any sex ed. But I fell in love with this girl, and I just I kind of brainwashed myself I told myself okay I just admire this girl as a person I want to be her I don't really like her but I kind of really subdued it because I need to focus on my study but after the college entrance examination I I spent a lot of time with this girl and it turned out she liked me as well she was secretly in love with me for two years so we got together and I just felt like the feeling was really strong and it was really love so when my mom and dad interrogated me saying why you spend all your time with this girl are you gay I was like oh my god thank you for giving me a word to describe myself like because they said are you 同性恋 I was like Hmm, that's the first time I heard of it, and I think that's me. So I was like, all right, um, of course I'm not. Of course I denied. But later on, because like these feelings and emotions were so strong, and one day I just told them, yeah, I'm with this girl, and I really love her. So wow, that's actually really powerful, because her parents helped her name her love and her feelings for her best friend. I think it's powerful just to hear the term and to be like, wow, that's me, actually. Well, yeah, because in China, there is like no sex ed at all. So it's like, how would they even know a word? It's hard to think about it this way, but it's the first step to, towards normalization. Because at least you know that there's a, there's a category of people like you. And honestly, at least at that point, she has like a search term for herself that she can go <laughs> online and look up. Right. <laughs> so Ashley might have denied being gay at first, but she couldn't hide her relationship and her love from her parents anymore. So she came out to them. And obviously coming out to one's parents is pivotal for any person who's LGBTQ, but I think there's all these cultural expectations in China that make it even harder. When you are so stigmatized by your identity, I don't feel like you have the courage to reach out to people or to seek help or to find your community. So I was very deep in closet and I thought my girlfriend at the time and that good friend of us and me, we were the only three lesbians in the entire city of Shanghai. China really values like binary thinking. They think like things are either black and white 
or they don't really think the gray ground works. So for my parents' generations, like for my mom, for example, um, she's she's very open-minded. But even though she already accepts my sexuality, but she still feel like once I'm single, I would still have the possibility of finding a boyfriend at some point of my life. So because they grew up listening to Chairman Mao's doctrines, they grew up knowing there's only good and bad, black and white. So for them to just totally negate the education they've received for the past 50 or 60 years, it's so challenging. So like those intergenerational conversations are the most challenging parts. I think the older generation in China it just doesn't believe that your individual personal happiness with regards to like finding your one true love, like your sexual love, is like something that you're entitled to. The idea that you would assert your individuality and your personal identity is maybe not so important to them because like they've always just been taught that safety and stability are the most important things to pursue. The cost of which can be your personal identity. You're a family unit. You're not a person. Yeah, you're a family unit and a society, which are more important than your individuality. I just want to touch on like the familial ties of Chinese people because maybe unlike the US, like after you turn to 18, okay, it's time to live on your own. But for Chinese people, the strong concept of filial piety you know, like still exists. Even for me, I feel like, okay, I've been in the US for almost four years and I feel like I'm an independent woman, but I still feel like the concept of filial piety is ingrained in me. I feel like I have this huge responsibility for my mom and dad and I just feel so bad and guilty like if I do something that dissatisfy them. Filial piety. What does filial piety like feel like? I don't have Chinese parents, so I have no idea what that concept is like in China. So Chinese parents typically expect a hundred percent loyalty and obedience from their kids. Right, but but to what end? Why why do they expect that? Because they believe that they know what's best for you and what's best for your life. They believe they're putting you on the path to success. So that's I think the foundation of the rationale for always listening to your parents. So I'm interested in this idea of your parents setting you up for success here in China. Because in many ways they do, in like a very material sense they do. It's expected that parents will provide their kids with a house when they grow up. They'll provide them a car, all these sort of amenities. And as we know from previous episodes, they even set you up on dates. Right, and they also like provide childcare. Even later in life, they might like help you decide when you should retire. Like there's so many things that your parents are sort of your partner in decision-making. Right, and in their mind, it's like only a good thing. They're only trying to help you. But there is a dark side to this because they expect even into your adulthood, even into your late adulthood, that you'll always listen and respect what they have to say and respect the decisions that they make for you. Because the mindset is that I've done everything for you and you owe me. Right. And I would say that they 100% don't see it as nasty at all. It's just that like control and support go hand in hand. And so how does this dynamic play out? with the LGBTQ community. You're supposed to get married. You're supposed to have a kid because your parents have gotten you this house and the car for that purpose. For them, like the pressure to satisfy and please their parents, 40% of queer people actually enter uh, like straight marriages. They trick their partners pretending to be straight and trick them in 
to like a supposedly heterosexual marriage, and like 35% of them will find, like maybe a lesbian will find a gay man to do this fake marriage. Ashley covers this in one of her videos. In this conservative society, people face huge pressures to get married. An estimated 20 million gay men are in heterosexual marriages. There are also fake marriages between gays and lesbians. This practice is called xinghun, which is a marriage of convenience in order to fulfill their filial duty. They just like throw a big show in their hometowns saying, okay, we're getting married, we are a guy and a girl and we're getting married. Throwing those fake marriages are more prevalent in those small cities and towns. And so you have to do you have to do this for your parents. Like you have to go back to your community and put on a show, basically. Because I think the marriage is a social act and it's a public sort of reaching of a life goal that is important to your community, weirdly, as much as it is to your parents. Your community sort of also needs to see and acknowledge that you've reached the right life stage. And so your parents can feel proud of themselves for having raised a good kid. From a documentarian perspective, um, and also from an advocate's perspective, I when I see these situations, I kind of feel like the doomness of it, like defeatism kind of, because like for these parents living in those small towns for their whole life, maybe they've never seen a foreigner, they've never seen like people of different kinds. So how the hell will they accept like a different sexuality, you know? So I feel like the generational gap and the conflicts are kind of irreconcilable. China really values Confucianism and Confucianism's its core value is family. So like a traditional family model, a man and a woman have given birth to a kid. So that's a very traditional family model that the party, the government one adheres to because like the birth rate in China is so low and because of the single child policy, like birth rate is dropping like super fast in China right now. They don't think gay families can have babies. Now they allow single moms to have kids, but maybe just like one or two years ago, they didn't. And, but still today you need to pay like a, like a huge amount of money. It's like a fee that this is saying that the society is taking care of your kid because you're a single mom, so. So the reason the government takes such a strong hand in promoting family values is that the government believes Chinese society is built on the nuclear family. Also, I think from a practical standpoint, the birth rate has been dropping precipitously in the past decade. And I think that any kind of threat to that traditional model of producing more children seems materially a threat to the Chinese government. So family is really at the center of a lot of the struggles of the queer community. But let's move on to the social and media landscape. So these are some official forms of suppression that affect Ashley and other activists. I think dating apps really plays an important role in China's LGBTQ visibility because this is like a need. But these dating apps are also like struggling to survive because they're like working on this fine line. A friend of mine, she is the founder of the dating app Rela, which they claim to be the biggest lesbian dating app in China. And their app was like shut down because they organized an event. Um, moms and dads of LGBTQ kids, they go to this park in Shanghai, like a marriage market, and they try to find like same-sex partners for their kids. 
and these parents were later kicked out of the park and that app was taken down from App Store for one month. And right now this friend told me that they are trying to rebrand themselves as a woman community app instead of like a queer woman community app because that way they can survive longer given like the strict environment right now in China. Because of this failure, they, they lost like one month like revenue. So they are becoming more and more cautious. So I feel like the government censorship, it just makes people self-censor and that's the craziest part. We know Big Brother is watching you and you just internalize this concept and you're just becoming more and more cautious yourself. You, you're basically brainwashed yourself thinking that there isn't much we can do. There, we are doomed. We just need to oblige. We just need to follow the party's regulations and rules. I just feel like this kind of pessimism and defeatism are very toxic and that's very common. So I can totally understand where Ashley's coming from. This like sense of defeatism is really tempting because if you're doing something in the queer community, that means you're investing all this time, energy, and money, and you're maybe you're employing people. And then at any point, the rug could just be pulled out from under you. You could just have the whole thing be shut down. It's a huge amount of risk that you're taking on. And it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel as well. I think it's almost more up that they censured them for like a month but let them ultimately continue their business as long as they sort of sand down their edges because it's like they want to incorporate them into the society but they don't want the people to express who they are this was a lesbian dating app but now it's just sort of a female community building app like that's not the purpose it's like pure erasure so I think like her friends who've started that lesbian app, Ashley has the same concerns about censoring herself. So she's constantly having to get around regulations on social media, regulations that are black box. When I tried to publish my videos, they got deleted for no reasons. Like maybe I put it today at 8 a.m. It got deleted. But tomorrow I tried at 2 p.m. It got passed. Maybe it survived for like 36 hours and it got deleted again. So it's like I'm constantly guessing, like where is the line? Um, and I, I was constantly like trying to cut out some parts I thought were too sensitive, like to the detecting mechanism. So that was so shitty. It, it's like I need to try to figure out how this censorship works. And that's just very, very tiring and very frustrating. And the more, the more this kind of thing I do, it just gives me like the self-censorship because the next time I make videos, I was like, okay, I really wanted to, I really want the video to get published on, on Chinese social media because that's where most people want this content. But can I film this? Can I really add this part in? Because if I do, these videos may never get the opportunity to being seen by people. So I think the online censorship is really, um, it's getting, worse and worse my videos might exist for like one day online and i'm already grateful for that because that's one day of exposure and people in that 24 hours can see the content and they can get inspired by the stories i've created so when i put my videos online i always receive messages saying okay ashley you're the only out queer person i know i was like how can that be possible right but once again, when I was 18, I thought there were only three lesbians in Shanghai. I said, okay, you were born after 2000 and you still don't know any queer people? How can that be possible? But that's some realities people are living in. 
So her videos are up for like 24 or 36 hours. Man, that's like nothing. So not all of her videos are taken down within a few days, but it's kind of arbitrary which ones are and which ones aren't. So sort of liberalism and censorship have ebbs and flows in China, and we happen to be in a particularly tight kind of time, and the tightening of the censorship is only increasing. My question is just sort of not why do they block her, because, you know, that's China, but why do they let her continue on her profile? Why don't they just shut down her profile? It's like they leave your account open so that you can amend and self-censor. You can learn this lesson on your own. The government is constantly unclear about what it will allow and what it won't. So people never really know. They're always guessing. So is the extent of the censorship just sort of online or just go further than that? There are definitely real world consequences for being an activist. So Ashley mentioned that she has a friend who is an activist in the queer community, and this friend was hoping to go abroad, and she was applying for a Chinese bank card that she could use abroad, and the bank rejected her because of her background here. A friend of mine, she used to work in this nonprofit organization, I think in southern China, and I think she applied for a school in Australia, and then when she started to like get bank statements and to open a card so she can, which she can use later in Australia. The, uh, the bank denied her application. I think because her activism was on record and she was maybe marked by the government as an insecure factor or a dangerous person. Or like a person. dissident in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she could not open a bank account. Like she could not open a, like a credit card for her to use in Australia. I mean, like for these activists, I'm, I really admire their courage because they they really get interrogated by government officials all the time. And I just feel like for me, I I don't think I'm as brave as they are. But as a media person, as a filmmaker, at least I can tell their stories. Ashley herself has said she's afraid to call herself an activist. And even Ashley, she doesn't use her real Chinese name on her social media accounts because she's worried about backlash from the government. And it's not just activists and individuals, entire organizations supporting the queer community are being censured or being limited in terms of their funding. Um, because I think a lot of nonprofit organizations around China are doing amazing work. They're, most of them are grassroots organizations and they're creating really important change. But for them, I think there are maybe few, fewer than 10 organizations, like LGBTQ organizations in China are like legally registered within the, the system because, um, and most of them are HIV related because the government really focuses on like HIV prevention. So for those gay men organizations, they say, okay, we are like HIV prevention advocacy groups instead of providing services for gay men. And for maybe lesbian groups, they say we are women's rights groups. And like, I remember two or three years ago, there is like a new regulation towards nonprofit organizations. Um, it's like you cannot receive funding from overseas um, because they are afraid like the, for the foreign forces are trying to interfere with Chinese policies or whatever. But most LGBTQ organizations have their money, get their money from overseas. So basically their, you know, their lifeline was just cut off. So I read about this two years ago, basically, they shut down all foreign funding for any kind of NGO in China, regardless of what kind of NGO it was. Right, I think this is just another sign that China is becoming more closed and more nationalistic. I think China doesn't want 
foreign influences on its social causes. It doesn't want to accept foreign money. It doesn't want to have any dependencies outside of China. For LGBTQ causes, knowing that so much of their funding comes from overseas is like this kind of sick mark against them because it makes it seem like the LGBT community, they must be some sort of foreign force that it's like being pushed upon China, which is very... Right. I think it can be seen as outside forces trying to change or quote-unquote corrupt the culture of China. I'm just sort of wondering more broadly, like why? Why does the Chinese government want to censor LGBTQ voices generally? I think the government's concern is always the stability of the majority, and it's really willing to sacrifice minorities along the way. The party likes um, like a single finite narrative. They don't want different voices or different opinions because when people have their free minds, when people have their, their own opinions, they're way more difficult to control. I would say China is a very hegemonic country and the party wants to control everything. Not only the queer community, so like women's rights, LGBTQ rights, environmental issues, human rights, because these are considered like new and different voices to the party's perspective. They just want to subdue these voices and to oppress them. But interesting enough, back in 2008, when the Beijing Olympics was held, like there was actually less censorship towards the queer community online and offline because they want to show to the world that we actually have human rights in China. Look at us, we have queer people. You know, so, so there are like different windows, like different period of times when things are better and things are worse. Like recently, just two days ago on Weibo, they banned the hashtag lesbian just for no reason. So we talked a lot with Ashley about all of the different struggles that the LGBTQ community faces. You know, we talked about the family and we talked about society more broadly, um, but I feel like we've sort of neglected to talk about her story. You mentioned that she studied abroad in France and then in LA. So last time we kind of heard she was like still in LA. What was she doing in LA? So when Ashley was doing her graduate work at USC, she continued her LGBT advocacy as a volunteer at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. So how did she get into video production? Like three or four years ago, my girlfriend at that time, she studied film. So she wanted to make a documentary about China's queer community. And I was like, okay, I want to tag along. And she filmed all the footage and I was like um, helping her as a producer. And I just realized like these stories are really uh, valuable and very inspiring. So I just started to learn like editing. Um, but later on, I started this um, multimedia storytelling project called Out China, um, focusing on China's LGBTQ community because people are really dying for this kind of content um, because my videos are mostly about Chinese LGBTQ individuals and couples and about their career, their stories, their coming out experiences. And people really see queer people from China talking about their experiences on camera, you know, without their faces blurred out. 
So Ashley makes explainer videos, like some of the clips you've heard earlier, explaining sort of the fundamentals of being queer in China. And she also does interviews and profiles of members of the queer community. Open-minded, like if she's okay with other gay people, but she's not okay when her kid is like gay. My grandma's okay, my aunts are okay. Yeah, I think it's just my mom. Because I think I was like her favorite child. So she had like these expectations that I should get married and have a kid and then my name is Joseph Yates and I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, my name is Oliver Lee. Um, I'm originally from China, um, Jiangxi province. We've been together for 11 years, married for five years. 大家好,我叫露露,我 she graduates from USC and then she's working in LA. I mean LA is really nice like seems like she'd have a really nice comfortable life in LA. What was her sort of reasoning for coming back to China? I think Ashley really enjoyed her time in LA and she experienced all these privileges and freedoms as a gay woman there. But she felt like she wasn't being impactful enough maybe, especially for Chinese people. I think what brought her back to China is that she sees how little people have here and how much they need her activism and her voice and her examples of how to be a queer woman. Yeah, but for me, um I will say because I'm I'm a Chinese person and I feel like the local queer culture in Shanghai feels more home to me because we have the same oppression. People in Shanghai has a tighter camaraderie, I will say, because we have this we fight the same fight. But like for me, I'm not the kind of person who feels like I just want to have a comfortable life. Rather, I want to make my life meaningful in some sorts. Just want to create some change. They don't have to be big changes, but I just want to maybe inspire one person or two people. And I think that's why I moved back to China because I don't want a very easy life. And I saw like all the progress um, in the United States. They're awesome. They're amazing. But that made me extremely sad because I saw all the horrible news, uh, like the Me Too movement, like got like banned on China's social media and all the LGBTQ people got oppressed in China and that kind of mental imbalance was very destructive destructive to me so I just feel like I just don't want to lay in the California sun for the rest of my life It's admirable. I'm so gl I'm glad for the LGBTQ community that people like Ashley like come back and want to work in in this even in such a harsh environment. I think that she feels there's a real need for what she's doing in China because in America there's many representations of queer people in the media and they're quite outspoken. I'm not saying there's equal representation obviously, but there's more and there's more accessibility whereas in China all of that content is being taken down. People are being silenced. There's a real dearth of examples of how to live your life as a queer Chinese person. Yeah, I mean, even on her like YouTube social media, like she's showing the rest of the world that there are queer people in China, and that's exactly which something some we people don't probably see. don't think there are. Any. Right? Thank God for us. <laughs> 
I hate to be sort of like a devil's advocate here, and I, I hate to kind of like rain on the parade, but we've talked so much about the censorship she faces and the deletion, the erasure that she faces all the time. How effective, honestly, is her work here in China? No, but she is reaching people. She has 30,000 followers on Weibo. They're telling her their stories and making a connection. I think like people online give me a lot of hope and confidence because like every day I check my inbox on Weibo. I just receive a lot of messages, especially young people like high schoolers, they tell me how they're inspired by my videos and appreciative they are of the work I've done. So I would say younger people give me a lot of hope. And also from a media person's perspective, I can see uh, more and more content creators online. They can they do vlogs, they do videos, they write blogs, they share their experiences. So, you know, because most young people want to be influencers and they are they have this willingness to share their life. And so I can see more and more content online. And yes, the government can keep deleting them, but this information just keeps popping up. So there's no way you can just eradicate everything. These things really give me hope. And also, I think it's very important to find your community because I have a very close um, circle of friends in Shanghai, like the LGBTQ groups, and I see them like voicing out in their workplaces with their friends group. And we just keep checking on each other and we just keep supporting each other. So I feel like this community gives me strength and I just feel like things can get better, but we need patience. So I think Ashley's strength and a key part of activism is resilience and a healthy sense of humor. I just take these things more easily because I actually learned this at the LA LGBT Center that when you do equal rights movement, you really need to have a sense of humor because things can be so hard and you need to do it over and over again for 20 or 30 years or maybe forever. So you can't get defeated easily. So you really need to just laugh at it, you know, just keep doing it because things are shitty, but you can at least create a little bit ripple on the pond. Um, like restrictions are horrible, like censorship is horrible, but when you have those restrictions, you become more creative. You just find ways around, like you need to think all the time, like how can you work around with the system? And that can be a very um, interesting challenge. And I just feel like for me, that's exactly what I'm looking for. That's why I moved back to China. So aside from Ashley's activism, I'd love to come back to her family and her relationships. I will still say I'm a very lucky person because I'm, I've grown up in a very loving family. Um, my mom and dad and me, we, we really love each other, like real love. So when I came out to them, they didn't disown me. They didn't try to kick me out or whatever, but they were very heartbroken. So was I. But later on, especially after I um, started to go abroad to study, I feel like they uh, gradually lost control of me because I was living on myself, gradually going on my own path, and they were fully supportive of that. And also, I just I just kept working on these relationships. I kept telling them how much I love them. I say, I really love you guys, but I also love my girlfriend, and I want to be honest with you. I don't want to just keep telling telling lies at your face. So that's the most I can do, just show you who I am 100%. And I think there was one turning point, especially is because 
because of my project Out China,、uh, I was、uh, awarded a student excellence award by USC, the grad school I went to. So they came to the U.S. for my graduation ceremony. So you know how Chinese parents love these awards. You know they love straight A kids. They love their kids to have all these kind of rewards and you know fancy titles. So they said, okay, actually your school, a very prestigious American school, gives you this award. So that's awesome, right? Like you, your professors, your school really recognize the queer work you. So that means a lot to them. They felt they were really proud. They they have like big sm- smiles all the time at that separate ceremony. So they saw like I was not like messing up with my life with this Chinese queer project I was doing, but actually my professor and my school recognize it. So I felt like that was a turning point for them. I find that really inspiring. I just find the fact that parents, like we said, with such black and white thinking, from a culture where people try to erase queer people, that they can be p- so proud of their daughter. That's really moving. Right. I think Ashley's personal story, more than anything else, represents a ray of hope in the darkness. And her work is an extension of that. They're personal stories of real people who show how you can be Chinese and have a happy life and still be queer. I think Ashley's journey is about taking hardship and using it to mobilize, turning it into action and impact. But Chinese kids barely had any sex education, and homosexuality is such a taboo. That's why we don't like to say the word homosexuality out loud, or in Chinese, 同性恋 because it sounds too radical. Instead, we say 同志 Its literal translation means comrade. As our great leader Mao Zedong once said, "The comrades must be prepared to overcome all difficulties with an indomitable will and in a planned way. Our difficulties can be overcome because we are young and rising forces, and we have a bright future. Fight on, comrades, and let's build a real La La Land." Find Ashley's videos at Out China, one word, on YouTube, or on Weibo at Zhizhang. Hit subscribe. You've been listening to Strangers in China. Strangers in China is produced by Cherie and Clay. The show was mastered by Kaiser Cool. Follow us on Instagram at Strangers in China. Follow us on Twitter at Stranger in China. And please, please, please smash that subscribe button and give us a review. Strangers in China's theme song is "Analytical Skeletons" by Cezus. Other music included in the episode today was from Cezus, Lofi, Terry Skills, and Piano Flavor. For notes and research on this episode, check out our homepage, subchina.com/forward/slash/strangersinchina. Next time on Strangers in China, someone will have invite us for tea. You know, sorry, what? Invite us for tea in China. That means you get censored. Like you have a conversation with people from government. We say like in Chinese, like you invite for tea. Strangers in China will return with a new episode in two weeks. So tune in.
To all my real strangers, here's your bonus. When Sheree was talking to Ashley, NGOs came up and this weird kind of NGO scandal came up that was worth just mentioning because it's just so weird. Groups and organizations, they're really struggling because there's another, this is another topic, but fundraising in China is super difficult because people in China don't really um, believe in nonprofits given the Red Cross scandal happening like a few years ago. So people don't really want to, they, they don't really value the nonprofit organization concept. So for these groups that try to do important work in China, it is very difficult. So from a legal perspective, from a media perspective, things are still very challenging. So what is this Red Cross scandal? And why are Chinese people cautious or suspicious of donating to charities? Well, this is a tough question because I think there are a lot of good reasons that Chinese folks would be kind of skeptical of charitable giving. But there was this crazy fake scandal that caused a lot of people to become skeptical. Bear with me on this one. It started with this influencer on Chinese social media named Guo Mei Mei, who claimed to be a Fuar Dai, which is the equivalent of like a trust fund baby in China. She posted all these pictures of herself in like expensive cars, posing in big mansions, and that was right around the time that she changed her occupation on her Weibo account to say that she was the general manager for a company called Red Cross Commerce, which is not the name of a charitable organization and which she was never the manager of anyway. People online speculated whether this meant she was embezzling from the actual Red Cross, which she wasn't. She was in no way connected to the Red Cross. The only like kind of slight connection between her and the Red Cross was like really tenuous. A man that she was involved with said that he was going to invest in a company that had ties to the Red Cross. And he had joked that maybe he could get her, Guo Mei Mei, a position at the Red Cross as a manager. All of this was total nonsense, but because it was so high profile, it really tarnished China's charitable giving sector. It also highlighted legitimate corruption within charitable organizations in China. Like for instance, 8 billion yuan had mysteriously gone missing from the Red Cross in 2008 after the earthquake in Sichuan. As to the fate of our star, Guo Mei Mei, well, she just finished a five-year prison sentence for running a gambling ring in Beijing. So scamming really, really runs deep. And I guess kind of the cherry on top here is that it actually turned out that she wasn't even a trust fund baby. Guo Mei Mei actually came from humble beginnings. Her mom apparently was a masseuse and her dad was even in prison. So everything about this was all nonsense. But the key thing to remember is that that trust in charitable organizations dissolved. Well, I think generally Chinese people are not trusting of just giving their money away. This kind of stuff happens all the time in China, like embezzlement, yeah. um, phony organizations, things of that nature. 